there. Welcome back to Temporary Fandoms. You have been listening to the voice of Liam Maloney guiding us through the early part of Björk's main solo career uh, or sort of the mid-phase of her career in general. Uh, still with us is Nick, Jeffrey and Liam. Okay, so in the last episode, uh, you talked about how the Sugar Cubes were winding up and Björk was already moving into a, a sort of dancey area. There are some remixes that charted, and it looked like this was a natural place for her to go, despite the fact that we finished with Glinglow, which was a sort of big jazz, big jazz thing, which basically didn't seem to fit with the direction she was going, although obviously there will be some things that tie up later on. So let's start with debut, her actual debut. Official debut, I guess, rather than the 16, 15 year old Bjork, whichever that was. Um, and Liam, this was 1993, yeah? Middle of 1993, this one. Okay, I've got a quick question before we start. Um, she's stayed with the same label, right? Yes. One Little Indian were kind of a, a mainstay for Bjork for a very, very long time, yeah. Yeah, and. Um, Oh, didn't they change their name to One Little Independent when people realized that One Little Indian was a horrific name for a record label? Yes, they did. Yeah, I noticed that it was One Little Indian, One Little Indian, One Little Independent. Um, just to tag that back in, after a very fast Google there, um, they only changed their name last year, middle of last year. Oh, yeah, wow. to one little independent, which is quite shocking, actually, as a kind of consequence of um, the George Floyd protests and uh, oh. all of that kind of morass of stuff that was going on. So, yeah, a little bit late in the day, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, sort of shocking, right? Um, hadn't expected that to be a long time ago. I mean, they changed the name of Agatha Christie books back in the 80s. Yeah, it's a bit weird. Um, anyway, she's on One Little Independent, 1993, debut. Liam, what happened? How did this one come about? Who was she working with? Et cetera, et cetera. So to get to this point, you actually have to kind of almost go back to Glinglow to have this make sense. Like, Glinglow is, if we kind of discount that that first little Bjork record with the kind of cutesy production and, you know, 11-year-old Bjork on it, Glinglow is kind of the first time she gets to be front and center almost soloist she's like the lead vocalist in a little jazz trio great okay um, and during the time she's done glinglow while the sugar cubes are gently collapsing like a cake in a cupboard she is going back and forth to the uk to do bits of work with kind of some of the one little indian one little independent people and also guesting with people like graham massey and the 808 state boys graham massey of course they're kind of Leading light in 808 State, but also a bit of a Manchester hero because he was partially involved in the setup of Eastern Block Records for the dweebs that are listening in. Um, but she's kind of shout out to Eastern Block. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 no, they don't need shout outs. I've put so much money over that counter over the past few years. Um, they, they should pay me. Um, do you need more sponsors? <laughs> more sponsors? Any sponsors would do, frankly. <laughs> Oh, and one thing, people people who <laughs> were not on this call, uh, after the last episode, people realized I love Calipos, Calipos, I pronounced it apparently wrong. If if, Cali, if Calipo want to sponsor us and send me a box of Calipos or Calipos, I'd be very, very happy. Thank you very much. Um, all right, sorry, carry on, Liam. <laughs> we need to get into that pronunciation sometime. 
Um, anyway, she's heading back and forth to the UK a lot. She's working with 808 State. She guests on their Excel album on Qmart and Oops. And she's kind of around with an interesting bunch of people like Danny Siciliano's around, who we kind of forgot about now, which is a shame. Nikki Holloway's around. And she's kind of getting immersed into dance music in the UK. Um, and while this is happening, she's also dropping off some of her own demos to the people at One Little Indian, One Little Independent. Um, even though she's still got a whole record for the Sugar Cubes to deal with, that final Sugar Cubes record, um, which is just kind of a contractual, just get it dealt with and get rid of it. Yeah, what, year um, was the, what year was the last Sugar Cubes record? 92. So this was pretty hard on the heels of that, of yeah. that record. But it's kind of interesting. Like She's out in the UK doing this dancey stuff in 1991, goes back, does the Sugar Cubes, the Sugar Cubes then release a dance record, and then she comes back to the UK and kind of sets herself up as, I don't think it's a push to say, like a dance artist when she releases debut on One Little Indian. Yeah. Because she's working with those people like Nellie Hooper, the cheesemonger that we now know was Nellie Hooper, people like Graham Massey, and this kind of really interesting group of producers and kind of influences. And this is where she begins to like run into Goldie and hangs out with Nikki Holloway. And it's this kind of experimental pop, dancey art album that could be potentially a novelty at this point in time. She could just be this weird little, to use the word we were saying last week, this weird little Icelandic pixie who's just going to come over and release this weird record and a bit of a flash in the pan novelty or she could be someone who's got some legs and at this point we don't really know. I think at that point, I mean, because obviously uh, we were talking about just before we sort of started, um, her reception and her visibility in the UK and the US in the early days seemed significantly different. I mean, the enemy and stuff like that loved her, welcomed her with open arms. Um, I believe Rolling Stone gave it like a two out of five. I think like it was like, what is this cheap electronic tack? Um, it seemed like maybe she was working with a lot of British producers and the sound of the early 90s to mid-90s was going down a trip-hop sort of path with your Portis heads, your massive attacks and your trickies and whatnot. And she seemed to be going and fitting nicely into this. Jeffrey, as far as you're aware, I mean, yeah. in the US in 93, I mean, 93 was what? Tail end of grunge, right, girl? It was interesting because she did appear on her the human behavior video, which is how I discovered her. I knew I was a fan of the Sugar Cubes, but I didn't even make the connection that Bjork was from the Sugar Cubes wow. until later. And I saw the human behavior video, and what is this? Like at the end of the video, she plants the Russian flag. I was like, oh, this is some weird Russian artist or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it would show in 120 minutes, which would show all the alternative and grunge albums and or grunge bands and artists like that, and. But she was, I think she got popular, but it was sort of an underground popular, like sort of like college rock or something like that, where she she got big, but she didn't get enormous at this point. And Um, the scene is probably not receptive to Icelandic pixie. Mm -hmm. Okay, so she was probably doing the big shows and she was um, was like, what? So I guess it wasn't. Or did you see her? But it wasn't. But it wasn't. Oh my God! Have you gotten the Bjork album? Right, exactly. It's just really... And the video, that video, it was a uh, Michael, Michael, Michelle, Michelle Gondry. Michelle Gondry. Yeah. yeah. 
So, I mean, that sort of fits, right? A nice sort of narrative in his career. I mean, which all went very surreal, became a very surreal and amazing filmmaker later on. Okay. So, before we continue, I mean, I know it's a dance album, right? But when I was re-listening to Human Behavior, all I could hear was that if you change the vocals a little bit and you improve the guitar a bit later on, it's a track from like Hail to the Thief or something by Radiohead. It's a fucking Radiohead track. Uh, tribally drums, brooding sort of menacey bass, and sort of slightly not a normal sort of vocals. That's all I could hear was Hail to the Thief by Radiohead. It was a weird little... Sorry, Liam. No, no, on that, and I always, I always had a, like a group of friends who were into when I was much younger. Were into this kind of like what you would call vaguely alternative thing at the time. And there was loads of people who loved Radiohead, and there was loads of people who loved Bjork. But it was very rare that those two people coincided. It was a very m- m- Bjork, particularly, was very Marmite at this point. I think. Yeah, I think, I think definitely. So I mean, you've got some people who like the sugar cubes. And so that sort of gave her credence. They gave her credence, you know what I mean? Saying, no, 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 no. She's, she's got into credentials. But then you also have people going, what? Venus as a boy? Uh, this does not fit in with my long hair indie shuffle dance and my invisible tambourine on the, on the indie dance floor. It's hard to dance to Bollywood, isn't it? When you're, you're used to <laughs> the kind of grungy tones of, I don't know, in utero or something like that. No, no, totally. Um, yeah, okay. Um, Nick... Where are you on debut? Oh, I, I mean, now I love it. I love it. I think at the time, probably initially, I was a, I was a slight Bjork skeptic, uh, but I had friends who really liked the album, and and I kind of it's one of those albums like I, I probably had it on cassette and listened to it, or it was being played a lot. And now when I go back, I listen to it. It feels like it's a it's almost like a greatest hits tape. It's it, it all the songs are huge. Um, you know, it's it's such. I mean, my impression now is just, it's, it's such an extraordinarily good album. Um, and I was just a bit naive at the time, probably, and didn't pick up on that until later. Yeah, I think that's I, fair enough. I mean, the fact that there was so much other stuff, particularly for indie kids, certain area, certain time. I mean, there were the bridges, through maybe grunge and the rise of Britpop. Uh, maybe was some sort something was going on. Um, yeah, well, that said, I mean, so I was about nineteen, twenty, about when this came out, and I was—it I, was probably a little bit later that I started to sort of move, as everybody did, probably from from sort of listening to kind of indie rock kind of stuff towards more dance music. And these are the albums that kind of eased that transition because it was—it it, it kind of played to everybody, you know. And 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 that was the sort of thing I was thinking about it is that it, it had it achieves the rare feat of appealing to kind of all the kind of groups of uh people at that time without seeming compromising you know it doesn't it's a totally uncompromising record and yet it kind of appeals to everybody um yeah that wasn't on the i mean okay jeffrey you might not be aware of this um but there was a year in the uk uh somewhere in the 90s early mid 90s that everyone in the uk suddenly loved acid jazz acid jazz turned up um what's it no, it's later. No, yeah, brand new. Have it's about it was about ninety. So we're sort of two albums in by that point. Ninety three, ninety four. Oh, maybe, maybe every indie then. kid was suddenly going to acid jazz nights, and we loved acid jazz for one year, and then we sort of realised and woke up and had this ama- amazing. You know. I, I, I'd like to say that wasn't true, Ewan, but I do own three records by Corduroy. Ooh, <laughs> <laughs> I do this quite a lot. Uh, they're, they're, 
I can never remember when the acid jazz year was. I should maybe do it with Zoe's on because she'd get it right. Jeffrey? Well, I think it's interesting where uh, Nick is talking about how it has something to appeal to everybody. And you talk, uh, you refer to it as a dance album. And to me, um, there, there's a quote from her where she said when she was younger, she would love playing, Bjork would love playing Jimi Hendrix albums for her grandparents and take Miles Davis albums to her conservative music conservatory and make people listen to things they wouldn't normally listen to. And this album has songs like Someone in Love, which is almost like the precursor to Oh, It's So Quiet, or um, One Day, which is just this really sort of sweet song, which can be interpreted multiple ways, and uh, Come to Me, which is, has that sultry jazz line to it. Um, so I really do think this album just it, it has a lot in it. it. It really goes all over the place. It's definitely fresh. I mean, I mean, she's obviously she's young and fresh faced, but it feels even listening to it again over the last few days. It feels like a really fresh, vibrant, yeah. alive thing. There's a lot of joy in it. I think like there is a huge amount of kind of enthusiasm, and it feels considering where she's come from and like this kind of contractual obligation of the sugar cubes to come and do this eighteen months after that feels like quite this kind of big joyous celebratory moment and you can definitely hear that excitement in it like big time sensuality some of like the remixes of that as well just these huge meandering like 10 minute bangers um that are just ultimately enjoyable to throw yourself around on the dance floor to yeah um and she kind of situates herself well within that kind of underground culture as well i think um even though it was like you say an incredibly big record yeah actually i mean if you look at all all the all the lists of the greatest albums of the 90s blah 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 um i'm pretty pretty sure most record sites probably not pitchfork but you know pitchfork um this album's in there i mean it's probably not the only bjork album in there but mm. it's definitely in there and I, th I think you're right with the word joy and I, I think that's part of the magic of bjork is she can express pure joy without it being cloying or syrupy. And it feels like it's coming from an honest place. Like even on big time sensuality, those grunts that she throws in, it's like, I don't know my future after this weekend. And then she does this. <laughs> I laugh every time I hear that. <laughs> and I was just going to go back to the brooding thing you were talking about. So there are these kind of brooding tones buried in there though. There is a, like this kind of little bit of menace when it comes to stuff like human behavior always kind of unsettles me as a starting track it's a great tune don't get me wrong but there's something quite odd about it like i'm not quite sure where it sits it's quite fast for a bit of trip hop and it's a bit slow for a bit of dance and it's kind of a it almost on the from like the get-go you're on a, on the back foot a little bit and then airplanes a bit strange as well has that great then, jazz to it and then you get the re-release which i think they only did six months later they did the reissue which has played dead on it which i think is one of bjork's best tracks and everyone kind of forgets about Play Dead. It's her James um, Bond theme. It, she has several it, James Bond themes, doesn't she? <laughs> it is, exactly. And like, there's these little hints of like Bondian kind of melodies, especially in stuff like Aeroplane with that kind of jazz bass. Like you say, it's really, and it's a fun, if, oh, if Bjork had soundtracked one of the Pierce Bosnan Bond, Pierce Bosnan Bonds, God, that's hard to say. Yeah. I've not even had a drink yet. Um, If she'd, soundtracks a uh, pbb in the 90s <laughs> that's the soundtrack for it that play dead tune which is just this kind of sweeping majesty that you'll get in a few albums again anyway with yoga and stuff like that or yoga maybe say oh i was just say because uh, the one we haven't mentioned it but we did talk about a little bit in the last episode was um, there's more to life 
oh. which is, I mean, because the whole thing that's going on with that tune, with the, you know, the being recorded in the bathroom and stuff, it's, it's brilliant. I love it. But also just lyrically, I think it's a sort of cake and eat it moment because you've got all that sort of joy of it being like, you know, being the big, uh, another big club anthem. And yet it's also sort of about how there's more to life than this. <laughs> you know, it's setting out a stall that like, she's not just about this. And and that's, I don't know, part of the charm of it, I think, is is, is something quite exciting about that. I think there was, I think when I was, when I first put it on again a week or two ago or two weeks ago, my, my wife came in yeah. at the bit where, well, you know, there's that bit, she's going into the bathroom. Uh, I'm actually like, my God, it's such a 90s thing. The idea of like yeah. a music video and sound goes quiet because in the video, she's in the mm. bathroom. And so the sound goes quiet on the actual uh, recording as well. And it was really, really lovely 90s sort of memory. You can picture it all, right? But it's, it's hard to imagine many other artists pulling that off, though. It, it, on the record, it works. It's not annoying. It's not weird. It doesn't feel out of place. It really, really works. Okay, let's move on. We're going to move on from debut, um, which if you look at people's rankings of, of top Bjork albums, this does well, but the next one does significantly better. And for some of our listeners, this is going to be their favorite, um, which is Post. And it all sort of kicks in with Army of Me. I mean, uh, for me, it's bigger. There's more in there. It was massively successful. Um, I mean, I've got some things to say about it in a bit, but I'm going to go up to Liam first. Um, post. I mean, this is the natural step up, right? Um, it's, it's a necessary step up. So the thing I find quite revealing about a lot of this is that um, I'm a huge Grace Jones fan and Grace Jones only starts to get interesting when she starts recording at Compass Point Studios and Post is the moment where Bjork does exactly the same um, and so it kind of ups the stakes a little bit she kind of turns from being this kind of novelty this kind of curiosity as an artist which arguably Grace Jones is a great comparison for and becomes this really quite significant, ugh, I hate this word, creative. Um, Does she have content yet? She has content. She's a creative. Um, there's synergy and other things going on in there. Um, but she becomes this kind of quite legitimate artist by doing something like going to Compass Point. Um, and she's working with people who, in retrospect, you know, they might have been fairly unknown at the time or fairly flash in the pan at the time, but in retrospect, we're huge. So working with like Goldie's in there, Nelly Hooper is back again, Howie B, slightly forgotten, but Howie B's there, Great Masses kicking around, Tricky, arguably one of the more in arguably one of the more interesting voices coming out of Trip Hop at the time, hanging out with people like Portishead, and she's about to get engaged to Goldie, I think, at this point. Um, for a very short period of time. So she's kind of surrounded herself with arguably probably the most interesting people in dance music at this moment in time and decides to follow up what is quite a joyous, happy record with something that isn't so much as a kiss on the cheek as a black eye. It's just like the beginning of this record, when you get Army of Me at the start, you get this little noise and then just this explosion of Energy. Yeah, what are you saying? If, uh, if, uh, industrial Army oh, of Me was a really mm. industrial track. 
What yeah. a weird way to start a record as well. Like a, a really brave way to start a record with these kind of like chugging drums and this kind of, yeah, it, it's a great record. And that's kind of Massey's influence and the kind of Manchester industrial thing kicking in there. And then there's a bit more of like London club culture in there, but still having these weird moments in it um, that you kind of got on the first record. Like, I don't know, Isabel's a really quite an unusual thing. Like, Nowadays, we're kind of used to stuff like that, but at the time, oh, go on, you would just not agree. I'm not saying I like it. <laughs> well, no, no. I mean, but I find that I find that Isabel was a song that seemed to be written just to use is and Isabel as, as the <laughs> same thing. Oh, I've got this idea. I'm going to call it Isabel. I'm going to say is. If you're listening, go, is, I bet. Ah, oh, brilliant. And then I'll just make a, a song. That's one of my favorite songs by her. <laughs> yeah, like I said, I think people genuinely look at me like I have incredulous, idiotic ideas. I know. I just found Isabel a bit trite. I feel like if we're gonna, if like you could go into this record and exclude any track from it, the track we need to not discuss is "It's Oh So Quiet," because that's it's so apart from everything else that she's ever done and that's the only thing people know if you don't know bjork you know it's also quiet well no it's not it's not part apart from everything she's ever done because it fits in if that was on glinglow it's a perfectly natural fit right (laughs) um incidentally when when this first came out when army of me first came out i wasn't really paying much attention to it but i never really knew what she was singing like the first, I don't know, 50 listens. Um, I didn't realize she was singing Army of Me because it was just like, Army of Me. And I never really was paying attention to the song. And now, and then I, yeah, I'm, I'm an idiot. I'm an idiot. Well, it's a weird way to sing the song with words. And I just thought it was part of the lyrics. And then, yeah. Anyway, weird delivery of it. And Jeffrey, I'm apologizing for criticizing anything <laughs> in your favorite Bjork album. So I will come to you. Um, debut, it's happy, fresh faith thing. Uh, for you, was this happy freshly thing, and also in America as well? I mean, in terms of reception, was it as Liam said, like a punch in the face? Uh, how was it in your ears? To my ear, I, I I absolutely love this album, and like you said, the industrial influences probably when this came out is when I was deepest into my Nine Inch Nails skinny puppy fandom, and so it was fitting right in with that with songs like uh, I mean Army of Need that inter- and Enjoy, which is just a perfect industrial song, just absolutely perfect industrial song. And um, just the whole album for me sits so well. And this is when we're getting, I, I think one thing we haven't really talked about yet is Bjork is a lyricist. And I think she is really solid as a lyricist on this album and the next one. Um, just, I, I love her lines. She's, she's almost like a one-liner. Your rescue squad is too exhausted. It's just one of the coldest lyrics and was ever uttered. And um or uh, who knows what's going to happen, lottery or car crash, or you could join a cult. Um, <laughs> I love lines like that. Um, oh, yeah, lyrically, even from the Sugar Cubes onwards, there's just some crazy stuff that you would not hear from anybody else. I mean, for sure. I did I did take some notes to prepare for this conversation a little bit. My note on It's Oh So Quiet is just, shut up, it's fun. It's just, it's a fun <laughs> song. It's not hurting anyone. <laughs> right <laughs> it's um it's a minute a minute too long um right. i have this thing I, I about movies and all movies are 20 minutes too long i mean pretty much any movie you can slice out 20 minutes and it's a much better film 
And I was listening to this album again recently. Maybe it's because it was in the car, I guess. Um, I was just echoing it. I was like, oh, it's over. <laughs> oh, that was fun. I remember that song. It was massive in the UK. Yeah, it sort of charted, did really well. It was sort of everywhere. And then I think, oh, the song's over. And then about a minute later, I'm hearing really big riot again. I'm just, is this still repeating itself? I mean, just finish a bit ago, man. I mean, it's like the end of the movie AI. That was a great ending. And then just sort of went on forever. Um, vocally, by the way, on that track for... Um, on that track for, for, for UK people mainly, if anybody remembers Daisy Chainsaw, I get a lot of the Daisy Chainsaw vocal stylings on It's Also Quiet. Um, and, and these are reference points that have just whizzed past me. <laughs> Daisy Chainsaw were, was basically this one hit. Sorry if you're listening, but I don't imagine you are. Yeah. Indie band with Love Your Money. Love your sound. Love your love, love, love your money. And anyway, um, it's out there. Go and listen to it or don't. But yes, Jeffrey. And I don't, I don't know about her reception in America at this point. Um, she was still considered. I mean, it's also quite got played to death here as well. But I don't know if people still picked up on her. She was still considered sort of this quirky, weird artist, and so she got popular. But I don't think she ever really hit with the mainstream here uh, at that point. It's that reason that I really dislike it so so quite because that kind of noveltyness kind of undoes really interesting work that she does here and kind of maintains that pixiness, that silliness, that fun. That don't get me wrong, it's great, but it kind of it it does a disservice to some of the stuff she's doing here, I think. Yeah. I mean I, I hated that song in the nineties. Really, really hated it. So That's the real surprise good. for me going back to this album was actually, you know, I was dreading it. And then when it came on I was like, eh, it's not so bad. <laughs> and I think it was just because it was it was all the time being played everywhere in the nineties. And it was and it's it's just annoying. And it's like you say, it's not really representative of the rest of her work. So it just ends up and it's interesting what you're saying about uh debut on its own almost could have been like a novelty thing if it if it'd only been that. It's more this one song. If if you you know if Bjork had disappeared after post and all she was remembered for was oh so quiet, that would be so unrepresentative of her best work. Absolutely. That'd be a real shame, actually, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah she yeah. just disappeared off into obscurity at that point. It's basically 1.54 in the morning on a Friday night in indie music nights across across the UK, and they played that the novelty song, the one where everyone who's drunk who or everyone who's trying to pull, they sort of come up and they dance, and maybe it's, you know, it's we're, all, we're doing it ironically, and it's a bit of Fred Astaire or, 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 or whatnot, or something like Kylie. <laughs> yeah. Um, and this this became the novelty song for like a year, maybe. You couldn't end an indie night anywhere without it. Oh So Quiet would come up and people would drunkenly go on the dance floor and, put that, and go, shh, to each other. Did they do that? Did they oh, really no, no, do no, that? No, 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 no. They, they really, really did. Anybody? Oh, Just me? <laughs> anyway, um, I was listening to it, obviously, recently, and there was, I don't know, some of the production on this album uh, just seemed a bit more dated. Uh, whereas I know I found debut was still fresh, but a lot of this sounded very flatter and dated of its time. That's the Nelly Hooper influence. Like as a as someone who can compose and create, it's great, but very much locked into that time period. Like violently happy and um, big time sensuality. Those ones on debut were did sound dated. To be honest, when they dropped, 
realistically. Um, but it just happens to be that they've got quite a nice retro feel to them now, perhaps, that we all kind of revel in again. But, you know, not all clangers from Hooper. Hyper Ballad hasn't aged a day. I could listen to that till the cows come home. It's, I, I still think it's some of the best work, actually, Hyper Ballad. It's, it, it breaks yeah, I love me. that. Um, this is the one on with headphones, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, headphones are astounding. It's astounding as a track, astounding as an album closer. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah, I think I prefer debut. I decided over the last week and I tried to balance between the two and I kept flip-flopping. Um, but I enjoyed debut more and I'm probably going to go back to that one more. Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep this thread going. Um, debut was the Benz. And this one is sort of OK Computer. And Nick, you can pull that face or you're like, I'm continuing this over the next two albums. Really? And then you'll realize oh, I have Jesus maybe Christ. something. Um, so <laughs> I, It's a really fair comparison and it does so, so for, well as you can. Exactly. <laughs> so for this episode, I was looking at it. I was thinking, OK, so we've got debut, sort of like The Benz. Um, and then Post is a bigger album. Although for me, sounds a bit dated. OK, yeah. So we've, we, we're in the OK Computer territory here. And then going to move on to essentially my favorite Radiohead album, um, which is Kid A, <laughs> in homogenic, homogenic um, which I have a lot of notes. Not yet, not yet. I underline the word you, amazing you, five album, times. Man. We are skipping a record. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I forgot. Sorry. Um, totally forgot. We're going down the remix route. Um, well done. Well reminded. Uh, um. Yeah. So... Immediately off the back of post, she releases Telegram, which I, I hated the title of particularly because it changes the meaning of the title of post, which really annoyed me. But that's fine. Um, but this the reason I kind of include this, and we've kind of already, not purposely, but quite um, obviously harked back to the fact that she's coming out of a really um, interesting space where she's hanging out with like the Bristol lot who are kind of deep into trip hop and drum and bass and like tricky and massive attack and that lot. She's hanging out with what's happening in Manchester with kind of the Hacienda and 808 state and tricky and Goldie and coming over to Leeds with um, Mark Bell from LFO. And she's kind of really immersed herself in dance music culture. And, you know, the people producing on these records, pretty much dance music producers with the odd little exception, dance music producers. And so, remixing and dance music is part and parcel of who Bjork is, particularly at this early stage, and will always kind of stick around as well. Um, So she releases Telegram, which is actually a second remix album. There was a remix album for debut. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. The best mixes from the album debut for all the people who white label who something? Who don't buy white labels. Something? Yeah, a, a catchy title. But it's got like, <laughs> yeah, that first record's got like, um, remixes by Black Dog and Underworld and Andy Weatherall in his Sabres of Paradise guys and stuff like that. Um, and it's all right. It's fine. Um, arguably, some of the best remixes aren't actually on that um, from Telegram, uh, from debut even. But she releases Telegram, which is kind of her remix album where she actually takes over a little bit of control and is actively involved in some of the remixes that are going on here so people she's got involved are like brodsky quartet howie b's back dillinger is back which is crazy um graham massey's back so she's got these kind of interesting people coming in working with her and 
I think that Telegram is a really quite beautiful record, and I think it is as beautiful, if not better, than Post. And I know I'm going to get stoned as I walk down the street for saying that, but I think it's a better record than Post. I, I don't know that you will by anyone here. I mean, I, certainly not by me. I, I really like this album. Um, it was probably the first original Björk album that I bought oh, uh, at the time. I mean, to put that in context, I was living in Poland and didn't have access to a lot of great new music. But the station, uh, Katowice station near where I lived, had these kiosks that sold cassettes and bananas. And I'd <laughs> spent a lot of time scouring the cassettes for anything that might, you know, rejuvenate my sorry tape collection that I'd taken with me to Poland. And this was one of the records I remember finding. And, I, wow. and it was a real joy to find this. And, and I loved it. But obviously, I'm putting that in the context just because part of my love of it was that it was in a context where I didn't have a lot of other new music. And I thought, I thought it was brilliant. And that's an interesting thing she does through her career. Because preparing for this, I went through and watched every live album chronologically. Wow. And it's really interesting to see how every tour, she changes the backup group and, and who's playing with her, where on the first tour, it's sort of uh, international instrumentalists from all around the world. And the second tour, she strips it down a bit more and just has an accordion player and uh, an insane drummer. I forgot who it was, a really good drummer. And then the third tour where she gets the string quartet and Mark Bell. And then it's just moving on from there. And then each tour, she'll play songs from the previous tour, rearranging them completely and really uh -huh. coming up with new ways to play those songs and hear those songs and express those songs. And I was going to say, going back to debut, the, one, the most shocking one was the very first the unplugged version of Come to Me, where she has the jazz player and someone playing uh, wine glasses, doing a very sultry version of it. Then on the very last tour, her bitter divorce tour, she plays it with a 40-foot movie screen and slugs copulating on the movie screen while she sings the song. <laughs> <laughs> a very different feeling to that one. Copulating slugs. <laughs> nobody else, particularly nobody else who achieves success, and was actually creating good music as well, would be doing that visually and artistically. Um, you might get some underground offbeat bands, uh, well, copulating slugs, but in terms of someone this major, I don't think there's anybody else that would do that, uh, who probably wouldn't get away with it. And I think it kind of comes down to the core that underneath all of this stuff, irrespective of how she treats the material, whether it's a remix, a cover, a live thing, a kind of visual presentation, whatever it is, a good song that Bjork's written is a really good song. Mm. And they're these kind of weird little amorphous blobs that she can kind of twist and shape into whatever she wants to at that moment in time. And yeah, on those kind of, on those live tours, like the, the Vespertine tour, the way she treats some of that material is just oh, a little bit dreamy. Okay, well, we'll get back to that. Um, first, we have to do Kid A. Sorry. Yes. How much hom homogenic, homogenic, which is 1997. Um, for me, um, this for me is probably the album when, when she became something uh, proper and amazing, doing something nobody else would, would be able to create. This is that album. She creates something new rather than create something good. Um, it was also the other way. She seems to have a lot of issues. She seems to have had lots of issues with uh, paparazzi and crazy stalker fans and all this sort of thing. There are lots of things going on. But for me, I mean, as an album, we've got... I mean, Bachelorette is my number one track on the album. It's astounding. It's like, as an album, it's almost like a Joanna Newsom meets Post chill-out uh, session club room at five o'clock in the morning, plus something no one's ever heard before. 
I mean, I, uh, I, I said, like, I, I wrote that's amazing, underlined it five times. I'd also, as we know in temporary fandoms, I, I love a short album, and this is the shortest album. Ah. Oh. Bjork. And then um, how, how you talked about making that statement of going into the studio, working with, with certain people in post, embracing the dance and the electronic scene. Um, how did she evolve into this? That's a great question. So all this remix work, I think, is it does set the scene a little bit for homogenic and kind of what comes after, which is kind of why I wanted to kind of lay the point a little bit. But it's kind of homogenic is maybe the point where she stops using other people's tonalities and kind of doing bits of homage and copying other styles and starts to generate something that is quite quintessentially Bjork. Like Hunter is something that is quintessentially Bjork here. It comes out of a really strange place, though, like you say, like with the stalkers and all this stuff. So she started the work at Made of Vale originally with a chap called Marcus Droves. Um, but after um, a very unwell man tried to send her a letter bomb and then killed himself, um, paparazzi descends. And she's already not a big fan of the paparazzi after that punch, the famous punch at the uh, during the post tour, if you guys remember seeing that. Um, so like the airport was it yeah, yeah. and she was just yeah, getting yeah. hassled by paparazzis and so yeah, she they were trying to photograph her, or interview her child and that's yeah. a no go yeah. zone yeah I don't think anyone's particularly going oh isn't Bjork dreadful for punching paparazzi um, but so she uh, she's kind of essentially under not house arrest but she's locked in her house terrified of paparazzis police have kind of stopped the post and all this other stuff um, and so she's essentially just kind of trapped in her house with this engineer and they're working on this music together um, but they decide um, after her drummer for the post tour, a guy called Trevor Morais, who might be the drummer you're talking about. I can't remember. Um, possibly. So, yeah. yeah. Um, he has an apartment with a kind of little studio attached in Malaga and just invites her to come stay. But I find that a really odd thing that she's goes to Spain to make homogenic, which is a really cold record, I think. Like, I think Spain, I think Hot, I think kind of fiery and passionate. And this is does have passion, but it's clinical and precise passion, not this kind of extravagant exuberant thing. I mean, not not everybody who comes to Spain puts flamenco guitar in their tracks. I mean, it's a bit I of know, a... But she's uh, in the middle of Malaga in the 90s. I feel like there is a... Well, I mean, as someone who lives in or near Malaga, um, I mean, I say, I think probably about 20 minutes away, if you drive into the hills from me, that's where Flood lives. So yeah, there are musicians and there's producers knocking about here. Um, but granted, now I want to hear Bjork's flamenco album. I don't. That would be incredible. <laughs> I've got nothing else to say. It's brilliant. I just think this is a fucking phenomenal album. Yeah, no, I mean, same here. I, I, I really like it. I mean, I think it's slightly less immediate than the earlier ones in that they've got the, the big pop numbers in the earlier albums. And here she's starting to move towards where she ultimately goes, which is the sort of slightly more soundscapey kind of stuff that she does. Um, but still, I mean, I mean, I love Hunter. It's a great track. And Bachelorette, you've already mentioned. So it's, it's got some big tunes on there still. Good stuff. Um, Jeffrey, yeah, it, it's one one of my favorite by her. Probably it might be my favorite. I change all the time between the first three albums, but this one where 
like you said, it, it, she talked about how the rhythms came from the sounds of Iceland. She wanted to really capture the bubbling mud pits and the geysers and all the little nature sounds from around Iceland to inspire the rhythms. And then mixing that with the string section, I, I think is just wonderful. And there's a great uh, documentary about her. Um, I'm forgetting what it was called, the South Bank show, I think. And uh, they did a piece on her and they show her in Spain with the string section. And a little Spain did get in because the hunter, a little of that it was inspired by Bolero by Ravel. And so you get that dun, 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 dun in, in there. Yeah, and so, yeah, good point. And, uh, they, it, and it's really interesting to watch her work with, do what she does where she sketches out the songs, but then she hires the experts of their instrument to help her flesh out what she has in her head to bring the song together. And I don't think she gets enough credit sometimes for being the composer that she is and how she really structures these songs. And a lot of people say, oh, well, no, this dance musician or this electronic musician did a lot of the work on the beats and stuff, but she really does develop a lot of those on her own and right. has people just help her flesh them out a bit more. And Yeah, I mean, definitely. If you listen to it, even just up to now, ignoring what comes later, um, nobody could have a proper argument to say that it's not got her fingerprints all over everything, you know? Um, there's like an evolution of something really, really special. It's, it's not a novelty act. We're going somewhere new here. And I really, again, uh, any like alarm call, uh, alarm call is another great ending song by me with, I'm no fucking Buddhist, but this is enlightenment. That's just another great line. And then mm -hmm. a Pluto, which is another great Nine Inch Nails kind of song where when I saw them live or saw her do it live, it just exploded the entire um, uh, music hall that she was playing in. It just brought the house down when they did that one. Okay, look, I know I've labeled this point a little bit. Nick's going to roll his eyes, but I'm doing it for a reason. I made a comment about sort of Radiohead albums along the way, Ben's OK Computer, and this being Kid A. And for me, Kid A is Radiohead's best thing. Um, also pointing out there was an OK Computer remix album, so that sort of fits in as well. However, she seems to do them all a year or two before Radiohead does. And Tom, I mean, even Tom York has come out recently and said that Bjork, there's some Bjork songs that are some of his favorite stuff so he was probably being influenced by her and this is the point i'm trying to get at she's got to this electronic experimentalism with some new things going on before the millennium which is sort of when other bands finally sort of cottoned on to it she was a couple of years ahead of radiohead who are held up as, as as a band that changes things and then as we move into the next album uh vespertine i mean radiohead and kid a and then amnesiac which was they sort of recorded at the same time. There was a lot of crossover stuff. It was more of the same, but less. It was great, but not as groundbreaking. We've got it again. I think moving four years later with Vespertine, we've got an album that is great, but it's not as groundbreaking, sort of. It's more of a, a companion piece to homogenic. Homogenic, homo, homogen. I can't, I keep getting stuck over that word. Um, does it push the boundaries as much? I mean, it's more minimalistic and there's orchestral stuff. And I think it's nice. But I think after homogenic, oh my goodness, after homogenic, you can't go anywhere apart from down for a bit. I mean, people are probably going to disagree with me. I mean, everyone disagrees with me. Nick, you get to disagree with me first. Oh, excellent. I, uh, unfortunately, I don't. <laughs> nice. <laughs> That's the first time no, I've heard no, I, that. That's I, I, amazing. I like it. I think it's sort of uh, again starting to move more towards where she's going next. That's sort of more soundscapey. So there's less big tunes on this one, uh, which is what we'd come to expect from the earlier Björk. 
Um, but we're maybe starting the transition. This is where I get to use my line, that we're starting to move from party Björk to arty Björk. Yeah, okay. I mean, there's definitely the transition to something else. I mean, Jeffrey, for you, was this a step in a different direction? More of the same different Björk? This was really different Björk for me. And it's an album I've struggled with over the years. And I want to like this album. Every time I listen to it, I get a little closer. And still, it's something about it where she's described her beats on this as she wanted to make insect noises and make it really small. and something about that small sound and i think this and medulla both like people into asmr must really like this stuff because just that close <laughs> noises into the microphone mm -hmm. that just it, it makes me a little it's like like you read someone's diary and you wish you hadn't read their diary because you know too much about them now and that's how i feel about <laughs> best for team wow a nice. little bit but each time i but as i said i get a little closer each time i listen to it and i think she is doing some interesting things with her voice where she's not doing her big vocal style that I like, but she, I think she's experimenting for her where on harm of will, she does more crooning or on cocoon. She gets a very vulnerable with that high pitched uh, range that she goes into on that song. Um, and there are still, I mean, I love hidden place. That's a really good, uh, great one. I think it starts out a little too, uh, the best song is first. And so for me, it kind of goes downhill from there a little bit, and, but pagan poetry kind of picks it up again as well. Um, but yeah, I still, I still struggle with this album, honestly, but I think again, this is one where the live album opened it up for me, where I saw her with the Greenland, uh, women's chorus and Metmos like walking on ice to make the ice walking on ice noises and, uh, the orchestra. And I think this is the first album of hers where I needed to see the live version to really hear the songs better. Okay. Okay. I mean, before I did this, I went on to, to Reddit. I went on to the Bjork, the incredibly popular Bjork sub subreddit. And they asked, basically, does anyone have any tracks that they think are underrated? And Harm of Will came up a lot, um, a, a significantly large amount of time. And uh, it's not up to you as well. I mean, yeah, it's a good album. I mean, if she had come after Post with this, my opinion would probably be different. I, just, I think it's an astounding piece of work. It's just not. Uh -huh. uh, the peak that just came before. But Liam, this is why I came to you last because at the beginning you said how much you like this album. Narrative, Liam, narrative. It's perfect. I, I It's, um, this is the first time Bjork gets it bob on. Don't get me wrong, like homogenic, beautiful record, really well crafted, fits together. There's stuff in there that maybe like, you know, like Pluto's great track, but doesn't quite sit in context. This, everything is this kind of really considered, thoughtful kind of block of material. And I almost like it to the point where the idea of picking a track or even dividing this thing into tracks seems irrelevant. It's a work from start to finish. And there's just these beautiful little moments that pop out of it. The live show, um, the one at the Royal Albert Hall, is perfection. Like with with Matt Moss like walking on ice, and the Zena Parkins, I think it's on half at that time. And what Matt Moss are doing with the kind of gestural control, it's, oh, I could rant for a very long time about this. But um, my favorite, we have what? time. We have time. 
<laughs> my favorite track on this well there's two there's unison and long story short i cried under a table once to unison just because it was a bit much for me it just got me once um it was a weeping child under a table um were you already under the table or did you crawl i had under to the crawl table? under the, i needed a little warm place to get to um yeah track two on this though cocoon i i teach cocoon um to my first years as a an example of how you marry the idea of music and lyrics and production and the idea of cocoon is genius like she's there there's no echo no reverb on her voice whatsoever and you get all the like all the kind of spit in her mouth and it's as if she's right up against you essentially it's a song about two people having sex and i'm making love i suppose um and it's essentially you and Bjork in bed together and she's talking directly at you. It's so personal and so uncomfortable that it's genius. I've just, I could, I've got infinite time for this record. I think it is an absolute work of art and it is the first time Bjork really achieves that pinnacle. It happens again later, but this is the first time it really hits. Sorry, I'll, I'll, try, and, I'll try and dial it down a bit. I need to chill on it. <laughs> no, not at all. It's great. I would probably say that's a perfect time to wrap up this episode. We have gone through Bjork's growth from Dance Dance Pixie, I guess, into something unique and groundbreaking. She's, she's becoming, she's creating art, I guess now multi-layered art, which is something that not many other people have ever been able to pull off. She's ahead of Radiohead in the game on almost every album. So, okay, Nick, I don't carry on with this in the next episode. I sort of run out here, kind of. And, um... For at least one of our panels, she ends this episode on a high with a perfect record to cry under a table too. Although sadly, I sort of wish Cocoon was that record just because of narrative and cocoons and things like that. Somebody stop me talking. Anyway, we will be back in the next episode. We will continue looking through the work of Björk, the work of Björk. There'll be a slightly different change of panel again. Uh, Jeffrey, it has been fantastic having you on for the first time. Please come back at some point in the future, maybe to do The Damned. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's been ace. It's been great. It's been ace. What year <laughs> is this? 1985. Um, anyway, thank you ever so much again. And for telling us we're all wrong, because a little dissent is always worth worthwhile, Liam. Nick. Cheers. Bye-bye. See ya. <laughs> Bye. Football is a fertility festival, said Björk, on one of those quotation sites that doesn't offer any sources. Eleven sperm trying to get into the egg. I feel sorry for the goalkeeper. Well, I know I'll be viewing my next game differently, and please accept my heartfelt apologies for turning up for this episode a little drunk on account of the fertility festival. Thank you also for listening, and thank you to Liam Maloney of the Dancing About Architecture podcast for your fabulous introductions, and to Jeffrey MacDonald for joining us as a guest. If you need more Liam in your life, the Dancing About Architecture podcast lives alongside ours at Beat Rehab. Go and check it out. Thank you to my sensibly abstinent co-host Ewan for chairing the discussion and cutting together the shows, and to Jonathan Fisher for our theme music. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to leave us a review or recommend us to your friends. And if you really enjoy the show, you can help keep it going by subscribing to our Patreon at patreon.com slash tempfans. We'll be back next week for the concluding installment of Bjork's discography. Until then, I'm Nick Hilditch.
you know there's more to life than this.